and 2 Peter chapter 1. Those are two verses we'll start with this morning. We've got a lot of verses to look at both this week and next. And this topic may even take us an extra week past that. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll read these verses in succession and then jump into our topic for this morning. 2 Timothy 3 and verse number 16 verse that you ought to be familiar with, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16. The Bible says this, all scripture, the words in the Bible are important, all, that means all, all scripture is, that verb is present tense. It doesn't say all scripture was, it doesn't say all scripture will be, it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Second Peter chapter 1, verse number 19. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. We have also a more sure word than prophecy. Remember a recent lesson, more sure than what? More sure than Peter being an eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. More sure than James and John hearing God the Father speak from heaven in an audible voice. We have a more sure word of prophecy. It would be better to have a Bible than it would to, be ha- than it would to have that mountaintop experience that Peter, James, and John had. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that shake heed as no light that shine in the dark place of the day dawn, the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, verse 20, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. How did the prophecy come about? Verse 21, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The first point I want you to fill out in your outline this morning is that the Bible clearly claims to be divinely inspired. The Bible clearly claims to be divinely inspired. It is true that men wrote the words down, but the words that they wrote were not theirs. They were God's. When the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that word inspiration speaks to something that is breathed. God breathed the words. How did the holy men, how did the prophets of old know what to write down? God spoke it to them. They recorded it. And if an attorney dictates a letter to a secretary, she types it, she prints it. But who signs it? The one who dictated the letter signs his name at the bottom because the words are his, not necessarily the individual who wrote the words down. It's a very simple concept, but we want to be clear that the Bible makes no mistake that these words, they're not the words of man, they are the words of God. 415 times the Bible uses the phrase, thus saith the Lord. 313 times scripture references the word of God or the word of the Lord. So when we open up the Bible and read the book of Genesis, we're not reading the words of Moses, we're reading the words of God. When we open up the Psalms, they may have been penned by David, but they're the words of God. When we turn to the New Testament and all the epistles that Paul wrote, he wrote under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit. We don't have the words of Solomon and Isaiah and Malachi and Luke and John. We have the words of Almighty God 
Because the scripture very clearly claims to be divinely inspired. Now, Psalm 12 is the next reference in your notes. Psalm 12, another passage that should be familiar. We'll get to in a second uh, why we're reviewing this to start off our lesson. Psalm 12 and verse number 6. The Bible says this, The words of the Lord are pure words. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation Forever, We covered this verse when we were talking about what God's Word is. It's right, it's true, it's pure, it's perfect, it's powerful, it's eternal, it's sweet, it's superior, it's necessary. They're pure words, not mixed with anything else. These are holy and completely the words of God. And the promise in verse number 7 is thou, God, the, the one who gave the words that are pure, the one who is pure and so his word is pure, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation And forever this morning, my faith is not in the men God used to write down the words originally. My faith is in the God who gave the words. This morning, my faith is not in the men who copied those words throughout the century. My faith is not in the men who translated those words into all kinds of languages over the face of the earth. My faith is not in the men that God used to to, to record his inspired word. My faith is not in the men that God used to keep the promise that he made to preserve his word. Do you see the importance of that? Who is responsible for preserving the words of God? Who is responsible for keeping the words of God? He used men to do it, but it's a promise that he made, something that he would do. Thou shalt preserve them. And if God is powerful enough to create the heaven and the earth, if God is powerful enough to redeem sinful man, certainly God is powerful enough to keep the promise he made to keep his words pure so we could read them and we could know him and we could have eternal life and we could have life more abundant. I believe God inspired and God preserved his words. And the Bible makes no mistake about the fact these are the words of God. Okay, that's our foundation. Now, get Colossians 4 and 1 Peter chapter 3. Colossians 4 and 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm thankful that I grew up believing that the Bible is God's word. I cannot remember a time when I seriously doubted whether or not the Bible was true, whether or not the Bible came from God, whether or not the Bible was divinely inspired and supernaturally preserved a perfect record of all that God chose to communicate to man. I don't remember a time when I didn't believe that. And yet, there had to come a time, some point in my life, where I had to make the decision that that was what I believed. Okay? That I believe this book to be true, not just because I had always been taught that it was true. I had to make that decision personal. Okay? I don't remember exactly when it was that I, I made that decision, but I'm glad I did. And I hope that the, the truth and the veracity and the trustworthiness of Scripture, I hope it's not just something you believe because it's all you've ever been told. I hope that you have personalized that. I hope that you've come to that conclusion for yourself. I hope that you have made a personal choice and decision. This book is true. This God that is revealed in this book, He's the true God. And I want to know Him and I want to love Him and I want to serve Him. I hope you've made that choice. If you haven't, I hope you will. 
But believing the Bible to be the Word of God, while, while the Scripture claims to be divinely inspired, and what we're going to study today and in the coming week and maybe two, is reasons to believe, ultimately, and the next point on your outline, I believe, ultimately believing the Bible to be God's Word is a matter of faith. It is a matter of faith. This is not... This is not a fact that can be, quote-unquote, proven by the scientific method. This is, this is not something that can be attested to by present-day observation. Um, the men that wrote the scriptures, they've long since passed on into eternity. We are not watching any divine revelation. We are not watching the recording of any new uh, scripture this is something that does have to be received by faith. And while it, while it is undoubtedly a matter of faith, I also want to be clear that while accepting the Bible as God's perfect and inspired and errant word is a matter of faith, it is not by any means a matter of blind faith. It's not something we believe without any credible evidence to support that belief. Yes, we accept it by faith, but there are very good reasons why we do. It is a reasonable faith. It is a faith that is built upon strong and credible evidence. There is evidence that the Bible is inspired by God. There are reasons to believe that the Bible is inspired by God. Now look with me at Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 6. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6. Brother Travis Alltop taught a lesson from this passage when we were in Kentucky on the youth trip. Great, great Lesson, an important verse. The Bible says that your speech be always of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how ye ought to answer every man. That you may know that how ye ought to answer every man. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. 1 Peter 3 and verse number 15. The Bible says this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer. To every man that asketh you, or reason the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So here's the next thing I want you to fill out on your outline. The next point I want to make. There are reasons to believe the Bible is the Word of God. And it is important that you know those reasons. It's important that you know the reasons why the Bible is to be believed. Is to be trusted. Now, part of that is so that you can come to your own decision that you believe this book, that you're going to build your life on the truth of this book. But the other part of that is as you seek to build your life on the truth of this book, this book's going to tell you to go and witness for Jesus Christ, to go proclaim the gospel. And when you do, this is an issue you're going to have to deal with on an only increasing basis in our godless society. Because what is it that you hear when you go and you try to proclaim God's word to people? Oh, you can't trust the Bible. That's just a book written by men. And they believe that because they read a book written by a man that told them so, right? I, I, I did a little bit of research. I found a, a, a Gallup poll that was taken in 2017. Fill out these percentages on your outline. 24% of Americans believe the Bible is the actual word of God and is to be taken literally. That, that, that designation would probably be evangelical Christians. 24% believe the, 
believe the Bible is the actual word of God is to be taken literally. Now, that, just, just, that doesn't mean King James Bible believers like us who actually believe every single word. This is just in a general sense. God gave us the Bible. We're supposed to take it seriously. Okay? 47%, 47% of Americans believe the Bible's inspired by God, but you can't take all of it literally. Yeah, God had something to do with it, but he really didn't mean everything that he said. Or it's been tampered with, it's been corrupted, it's been changed. It's Some of it is just myth, some of it is just, you know, Genesis 1 through 11, it's just an allegory. It's 47%, okay? 26%. 26% believe the Bible is a collection of fables, histories, and moral precepts recorded by men. I'm just noticing that doesn't add up to completely 100%. There's another 3% somewhere or something, I guess. 26% believe the Bible is a collection of fables, stories, histories, and moral precepts simply recorded by men, that men just made this up. Now, here's why I give you those statistics, because what I want to point out is the fact that there are more people in your society today who believe the Bible to be nothing more than a myth than there are people who think that it is truly the Word of God and that God really meant what He said when He gave us the Scripture. Isn't that astounding? More people think it's an absolute joke than those who take it seriously. 26%, it's a fable, it's a myth, it's a legend. Man wrote it. To 24%, no, God gave the words and we're supposed to take it seriously. Now, the majority of people are on the fence somewhere in the middle that God had something to do with it, but not enough to actually take it seriously. That's where we are in the society. And so we need to know the reasons why we believe the Bible, because as we seek to obey the Scripture and witness for Jesus Christ, it's an issue that we're going to have to be able to deal with. It is a question that we are going to have to be able to answer. It says we ought to be ready to give an answer. Colossians 4, 6, 1 Peter 3, 15. And so what we're going to start doing this morning is looking at the reasons why we believe the Bible to be God's Word. We're not going to develop any of these points in depth. Um, I do want you to follow along. You'll take some notes. I'll point you to some resources. I'll get you started so you can maybe study some of these things for yourself because truly you're not going to learn it any better than if you just actually take it and jump into it for yourself and try to try to mine out the truths. But point number one is this, and we're, we're going to cover six points. I believe today we're going to shoot for four. Point number one, the continuity of Scripture. The what? The continuity of of Scripture, C-O-N-T-I-N-U-I-T. I want you to turn your Bible to the table of contents. Probably never done that in a Sunday school lesson, unless you were looking for a book you didn't know was there. Table of contents in your Bible, it probably has one. And there's something I want you to notice that relates to this point, the continuity of Scripture. I'll explain to you what that means in a second, but as you turn to the table of contents, a number of things you notice, obviously, what page each book is on, and that can be helpful. If you have to turn to the table of contents, you're already sunk during a sword drill, so you, you really ought to have these 
memorized, not the pages, but the order of the books. You got you probably have a breakdown. You have at least Old Testament and New Testament. You might have some further breakdown, historical books, poetic books, prophetical books, and so on and so forth, gospels, epistles, prophecy. And but, but what I want you to notice is we've got one volume, we've got one book, but look what you have inside. In the table of contents, you have listed the page number that each book in the book begins on. So the Bible is a book that is made up of books. There are 66 of them, right? 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 66 books. The the English word Bible comes from the Latin word Biblia, meaning books, plural, more than one. Literally, the Bible is a book of books. Books. Now, these 66 books that comprise the one book, the Bible, that are listed in your table of contents, they were written down by about 40 different penmen. 66 books, 40 penmen, best we can tell, about three different languages over the course of 1,600 years. 66 books. 40 men, three languages, 1,600 years, and yet the Bible all fits together perfectly as a single cohesive unit. That's what we mean when we say that the continuity of Scripture is a reason to believe the Bible. Continuity means uninterrupted connection or succession or union. It means uninterrupted duration or continuation, especially without essential change. We use the word continuity. You could simplify it and say the word unity of Scripture argues for its divine inspiration. How do we know that God wrote the Bible? How do we know that it's not just men putting down their own ideas because of how it fits together when comprised over 1,600 years by 40 men in three languages, and yet it all agrees it doesn't contradict. The only way that could happen is if there is one author that had his hand in the project from start to finish, and that author was God. Listen to this. Shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, and a priest all pen portions of Scripture. They had different immediate purposes for writing, whether recording history, giving spiritual and moral instruction, or pronouncing judgment. They composed their works from palaces, prisons, the wilderness, and places of exile while writing history, laws, poetry, prophecy, proverbs. In the process, they laid bare their personal emotions, expressing anger, frustration, joy, and love. Yet despite this marvelous array of topics and goals, the Bible displays a flawless internal consistency. It never contradicts itself or its common theme. It is difficult to try to express and communicate just how much of a miracle this is. Okay? Try to think about it today. Let's say that today we began a project and we're going to get 40 different men who speak three different languages and we're going to stretch this project out for 1,600 years and each of these men is going to write independently of the others on the topics of God, religion, history, morals, 
laws, anthropology, sociology, poetry, human relationships, sociology, prophecy, this vast array of topics, this broad spectrum of people. At the end of 1600 years, we're going to put it all together into one book and it's going to fit seamlessly and cohesively with no part contradicting the other, which each part meshing perfectly with all the others. If we were to try to pull that off, it would be a colossal failure like almost everything else that we do, right? That's why when Brother James is preaching and teaching and he shows us some of those just incredible nuances in the Bible, details that, 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 that are just astounding, he's always careful to mention the fact that it's not coincidence. This couldn't happen by accident. The authors of Scripture, they didn't conspire together and collude to make this incredible stuff up. They couldn't possibly have done that if it was 40 authors then it would all be scattered and jumbled but if it was one author then it would be unified and so the continuity of scripture argues for divine inspiration it it's a reason to believe this book is from god does that make sense okay point number two the endurance of scripture the endurance of scripture. Your references are Psalm 119, verse number 89, where the Bible said, we covered these last week, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 160. Psalm 119, verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Isaiah 40, and verse number 8. Isaiah 40. And verse number 8 says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. That's Psalm 119, 89. Psalm 119, 160. Isaiah 40, verse 8. And Matthew 24, verse 35. Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. We covered that the Bible is eternal when we were to describing the Bible lesson last week, what it is. It is eternal. And we mentioned how no other book throughout history has been so attacked as the Word of God. I've got some dates and some blanks. You're to fill in the names here. In 300 A.D., the Roman Emperor Diocletian, D-I-O-C-L-E-T-I-A-N, Diocletian ordered that every Bible would be burned. 300 years, about 270 years after Christ, he thought by destroying the scriptures he could destroy Christianity and anybody caught with the Bible would be executed. He wasn't the only emperor in history to uh, make such a decree or such an edict. He was one of the first failures. 25 years after he made that order, there was another Roman emperor by the name of Constantine. You might recognize that name and we understand his connection to the Roman Catholic Church and all the rest. But, but just for purposes of the endurance of Scripture, Diocletian, 300 A.D., every Bible burned. The next emperor, Constantine, about 325, he ordered for 50 copies of the Bible to be made at government expense. So one administration says, we're going we're gonna to rid the world of the Bible. The next administration says, I need 25 personal copies. Because you can't, you can't do away with the Word of God. It's going to endure forever. The French philosopher 
Voltaire, V-O-L-T-A-I-R-E. His name makes me think of Vulture. It's pretty close. Voltaire, V-O-L-T-A-I-R-E. He was a French skeptic in the 1700s who destroyed the faith of many people. He boasted that within a hundred years of his death, the Bible would disappear from the face of the earth. He died in 1728. And 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society moved into his house and used his printing presses to print thousands upon thousands of copies of the Word of God that he claimed he was going to eradicate. 19th century, the 1800s, this man, Robert Ingersoll, Ingersoll, I-N-G-E-R-S-O-L-L. Ingersoll was a famous agnostic. He raised the Bible in his hands and said, in 15 years I'll have this book in the morgue. And guess who was dead 15 years later? Not the Scripture, but the man. Okay, So the endurance of Scripture argues for its divine inspiration. Why haven't men been able to eradicate the Bible? They've tried to get rid of this book more than any other book in history. Why have they failed? Because the God who wrote it promised it would be preserved. That it's eternal. That it's enduring. Okay, point number three. Probably we'll have to finish with this this morning if we can even get it covered. Point number three, fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Let's let's read these scriptures. They're important. You can write down the references. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. There the Bible says this, Isaiah 46, verse number 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring, look at this. Sorry, I told you to look, but I didn't give you time. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Verse number 9 said, I'm God, there's no other God. There's no other God like me. There are a lot of, there are a lot of counterfeits, there are a lot of false gods, there are a lot of imitations, there are a lot of trying to be gods, but I'm the only God. And I'm going to prove it to you, verse number 10, I can tell you what's going to happen before it happens. I can write down history in advance. From ancient times, I can tell you the end. From the beginning, I can tell you the culmination of all things because God is eternal. He dwells outside of time. He can write history in advance and he's, He inspired men to do so. Fulfilled prophecy proves the Bible's from God. Look at Isaiah 42, verses 8 and 9. Similar statement made, Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Look at this. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God says what's going to happen before it happens. Isaiah 48, verse number 3. Isaiah 48, verse number 3. I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them. I did them suddenly, and they came to pass. Because I knew thou art an obstinate, and thy neck 
uh, is an iron sinew and thy brow brass. I have even seen, I have even from the beginning declared it to thee before it came to pass. I showed it to thee, lest thou shouldest say, Mine idol hath done them, my graven images, my molten image hath commanded them. One more, Isaiah 41, verse 21. Isaiah 41, verses 21 through 23. Isaiah 41, 21 through 23. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Let, let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them. And know the latter end of them declares things for to come. He's putting false gods to the test. says, okay, come prove that you're God. Tell me what's going to happen before it happens. Tell me what happened when you weren't even there to see it. Declare the former things. Declare the future things if you're God. Verse 23. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are God. Yea, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Accurate predictions of future events that have virtually no probability of occurring by coincidence are spectacular precisely because they seem so superhuman. Popular prognosticators like Nostradamus have entertained generations with their elaborate fortune-telling despite their pitiful, pitiful track records of inaccuracy. Oh, Nostradamus, he, he made predictions. He made thousands of, of vague, obscure predictions, and sometimes you can kind of try to force an actual event into something that he said. Sometimes. Of thousands. Okay? Oh, wow, he's such a prophet. But biblical prophecy is different. With incredible detail and forthright clarity and impeccable accuracy, the Bible has consistently unveiled the future for centuries. There are some, and, and somebody counted this up, and here's the number they came up with. There are some 1,817, 1,817 prophecies of some nature in the Bible at the time the author wrote the scripture. Someone has calculated that 27%, skip down in your notes, somebody's calculated that 27% of the Bible was prophetic at the time that it was written. It's very interesting. Okay? Now, let's fill in these blanks and then we'll wrap it up for this morning. Here are some, just, just a few examples of the many of fulfilled prophecies in the Word of God. We're not going to turn to the Scriptures. Let me tell you what they say. Daniel chapter 2. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream? Couldn't remember the dream? Said, wise men, magicians, you better come. You better tell me what the dream was and what it meant. And if not, I'm going to kill you all. And so Daniel went to God and prayed and God revealed to him. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream about an image. Head of gold chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet part iron, part clay. Remember that dream? And Daniel gave the interpretation this is representative of the world empires. The times the Gentiles start with uh, the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the chest and arms of silver, the, the, the world empire of Greece, the belly and uh, thigh, I'm sorry, the, the chest and arms, that's Medo-Persia, the, the belly and, and, and thighs of brass, that's the kingdom of Greece, the legs of iron, that's Rome. In Daniel chapter 2, and then it repeated again in Daniel chapter 7, this time represented not by an image, but by beasts. A lion and a bear and a leopard and a beast corresponding to the same kingdoms. God foretold world history hundreds of years in advance by the order of the kingdoms that would dominate the world. He describes the exact 
ebb and flow of the four empires from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome. He even foresaw the meteor, uh, the, the rise to power of the Greek con- conqueror Alexander the Great and the final division of the empire into four surviving generals. All that's in the book of Daniel. World history in advance. The, the history of the empires. Desperate to counter the implications of this prophetic phenomenon, 19th century skeptics concocted dating schemes that placed the time of Daniel's writings after the events. Wow, how did Daniel foretell with this clarity and accuracy the order of the kingdoms? He must have written it after it took place. Well, not at all. Careful research by modern textual scholars has validated the early origin of the prophecy establishing Daniel as the authentic author. His prophecy is a genuine wow, which clearly gives evidence of the Bible's divine nature. And the Bible is filled with amazing supernatural predictions like Daniel's that can be verified by historical records. Historical prophecies that spoke about the future of the time of writing but later came true are particularly effective as an evidence of the Scripture's trustworthiness. Ezekiel 26 is the destruction of the Phoenician city Tyre. Just say the destruction of Tyre. T-Y-R-E. Not the kind that goes on your car. This is the name of a city. It was a Phoenician city that Ezekiel prophesied would be destroyed. And it was. And history proves that. Archaeology, we'll get into later, proves that. Now, we, we, we do want to turn to this one. last one. Isaiah 44. The end of Isaiah 44, the beginning of Isaiah 45. Isaiah 44, look at verse number 25. Isaiah 44, 25. That frustrateth the tokens of liars and maketh diviners mad. Uh, verse 24, I'm sorry. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, stretched forth heavens alone, spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Frustrated the tokens of the liars, maketh the diviners mad, that turned the wise men backward, make their knowledge foolish. That confirmeth the word of his servant. That's what we're doing this morning. Confirming God's word to be just that. How? And perform the counsel of his messengers to say that Jerusalem thou shalt be inhabited, the cities of Judah shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed place thereof. That saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and in the temple thy, thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, then open before him the two leave gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee, make the crooked places straight, break in pieces, gates of brass. Verse 3, give thee treasure of darkness. Verse number Three, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which called thee by thy name, the God of Israel, for Jacob, my servant's sake, Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, there is none else, there is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. At least, at least a hundred years before he is born, Cyrus is mentioned by name in Isaiah's prophecy. Not only his name, but what he would do. He would say that Jerusalem should be built. Okay? How would you like to predict who the President of the United States will be a hundred years from today? That would be impossible. But here is the Bible giving name and country these rulers long before they're even birthed and come onto the scene. Only God can consistently predict such distant 
events. We don't have time to go further into Cyrus, but God named him before he was born and said he was going to rule and what he was going to do, that he would be the one to make the decree that the people would return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. And that's exactly what he did. When we, when we pick up next time, we'll talk about the prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll go ahead and give you the number. Students, Bible students have identified 351 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus Christ at his first coming. We're not going to look at all 351. Uh, we'll list a couple for you and then give you some places to look at them. So, the number of prophecies in the Bible. 27% of the Bible is prophetic. The time was written, 1,817 prophecies. Bring this sheet back to Sunday school next week if you can. Slip it in your Bible, put it somewhere where you'll keep it. We can continue filling out that outline. And this will take us at least another couple weeks. Reasons to believe the Bible. All right, let's pray real quick. Father, thank you, dear God, for your word. Thank you for inspiring it. Thank you for preserving it. Help us to believe it. Help us to really believe it to the extent that it'll make a difference in our lives. Help us, dear God, to be able to defend it against the attacks of those who don't want to believe it, God, because they want to be their own God. They want to lead their own lives. They don't want you telling them what to do. God, help them to see, uh, Lord, that you're good and you're to be trusted. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Bless in the, in the church time now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.